Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rockerless. Want to tell a story about not just the Nintendo Power Glove, but the changing attitude toward retro gaming over the last few years. When I went away to college, I wasn't sure what to expect. I had never really gone away from home for any significant length of time, and here I was going to be living away from family. I didn't even know how to prepare. Would my life change completely? Would I have to bring different things? I did try to bring some things of comfort. I thought, well, these are still people my age. Maybe some of them will be into the same things I was. So I brought a lot of my Dungeons and Dragons stuff with me, hoping to find a group of people to play with. And I did, eventually getting a decent group of people around me to play. While Dungeons and Dragons was a great side thing, another thing that I found out a lot of people were still into when I went to school unsurprisingly, was video games. Almost everyone had brought whatever home video game system that they could to school with them. So every little room had a Sega or a Nintendo of some sort hooked up to a small TV. What really surprised me is just how little care was paid to these systems, to the point where we had a common area and the good thing about the common area is that it had a TV that got reception. In the rooms, you couldn't get reception on your TVs. The rooms were concrete, nothing got through. But in this one room, it was some sort of hookup to an antenna. So you got a bunch of the basic channels that you could watch. It was also a big TV, and someone had brought a Nintendo down and hooked it up. And I think it just had Super Mario in it. Two controllers hooked up, but there it stayed. I don't know whose it was. Slowly over time, other elements of the Nintendo started showing up, hooked up to this television for anyone to play. It became a communal gaming experience, which annoyed a lot of people who, say, wanted to watch some big sports event and people were down there playing Nintendo. What surprises me in retrospect is by the end of the first semester, there were several dozen games just laying around on different tables and tucked under the system. There were also a bunch of controllers. There was even a power glove down there. And it was really the one time I got to play with the power glove in a significant way and learned a lot of the issues with the power glove. Still, it was a lot of fun to get to play with them, especially late at night when no one else was around. Nowadays, I can't even imagine that a system would show up in a communal area and grow to the level it did without people poaching pieces from it. But it was a different time when these systems would show up at garage sales and flea markets for very little money. And while I appreciate how everyone is very much into retro gaming, it is a little sad that the bar for getting into it has gone up significantly now. When, in the past, things were just laying around for you to pick up, nowadays, you have to make somewhat of a significant investment to get into it. Today I'd like to talk to you about a movie that glorified the Power Glove and is somewhat of a commercial for the Nintendo company and its games. 
the wizard. We'll talk about the people behind the camera and in front of the camera. We'll talk about the plot, the production, the music, its reception, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. Wizard is a 1989 film directed by Todd Holland. It was written by David Chisholm and stars Fred Savage, Christian Slater, and Bo Bridges. We'll get into the plot later, but the film is primarily an adventure road trip film about three kids on the road playing video games. But at the same time, there's a lot more going on in this film than meets the eye. Well, let's start off with the writer of the film, David Chisholm. David's got a bunch of credits, mostly TV and TV movie-related things. I would say if you were looking at his credits, The Wizard is his biggest thing. But he did write for things like The Fall Guy and the 1995 TV series American Gothic, which was really good. At least I thought it was. His most recent works have been in Las Vegas and doing a lot of event and stage work. Chisholm would produce the film along with Ken Topolsky. Topolsky had begun his career as a musical production manager and worked with acts like Karen Carpenter and Billy Joel. The music and film comes together when he worked as a musical coordinator for the movie Flashdance, which had a pretty good soundtrack, so good job on that. He would then move into television and began producing films. That's where he would wind up in 1989 producing The Wizard. He would then go on to produce the TV show The Wonder Years with Fred Savage, so a nice connection there, and would even get nominated for two Emmys in 1990 and 1991 for his work on The Wonder Years. He was the producer, but wasn't the director on this one. That honor fell to Todd Holland. Todd Holland was born in 1961, is a television and film director, most famously directed over 50 episodes of The Larry Sanders Show, which was a very influential show if you haven't watched it, and the direction of it itself would influence modern faux documentaries like The Office, Parks and Recreation, and Modern Family. He would then go on to work on TV shows like Malcolm in the Middle, where he received two Emmy Awards. He would only direct two feature films, Krippendorf's Tribe in 1998 and The Wizard in 1989. Holland has a good resume. He also had a great start to his career. He was discovered by Steven Spielberg, who had seen his film school thesis and hired him to write and direct on the second season of the TV series Amazing Stories. Later, he would go on to create Wonderfalls with Brian Fuller. Fun fact about his television work, he was included in two episodes of TV Guide's 100 Greatest Episodes of Television. One was the Everybody Loves Larry episode of The Larry Sanders Show and the Life of Brian episode of My So-Called Life. 
despite this great resume, they didn't want Holland to direct this film. And by they, I mean Universal, the company that would release the film. They wanted this film to be directed by somebody who was just going to get the job done. But when Holland saw the script, learned the story, he knew that there was more that could be done with this. According to Holland, I'd grown up loving kid adventure movies, and all the fancier movies I'd developed at Universal had fallen apart one by one. I wanted to direct a feature badly. The president of Universal Pictures literally sat me in his office and told me all the reasons he didn't want me to direct it. But I loved the adventure of the story. I loved the kids against the world element. To be honest, I did not play video games at the time, and I actually sold that as my strongest suit for the job. The movie needed to make video games interesting to everyone, not just preach to the converted. This approach on selling himself worked, and he was chosen to direct the film. It's a great way to approach the problem, if you think about it. When you want something, and you're seeing just a little bit of a window where you could bring something new to the table, it's great to just sort of use that as your lever. The original pitch for The Wizard was The Karate Kid, but with video games. Filming took place between June 5th and July 25th, 1989. So a pretty fast shooting schedule. The original script was also really, really long, and Holland had wanted to cut it down and went to the studio to tell them so. But they flatly refused him, saying, you gotta get all of this material. When they would shoot all of that material and edit it together, it would be 2.5 hours of film. The film itself, the release running time, was 1 hour and 40 minutes, so a good amount would be cut. And we'll talk a little bit about the differences a little bit later and which one you should watch. It's hard to talk about the film itself without talking about the elephant in the room, and that elephant was called Nintendo. Nintendo was having a problem with ROM chips. There was a shortage of them. During this delay, they thought, well, this is a good opportunity for us to rev up the marketing. And in 1989, Tom Pollock of Universal Studios went to Nintendo of America's marketing department saying, how about a video game film? At the time, video game competitions were a hot thing, and Pollock thought that they could do a video game version of the rock opera Tommy. Of course, the product would eventually turn out different, but there are elements of Tommy in this. Nintendo thought, sure, anything to get the word out there is a good thing, as long as they had some approval over the process and the portrayal of the games. A big push around the film was that it would include a big reveal of Super Mario Bros. 3. Now, that had not really happened in the U.S., but the game was already out in Japan the previous year, and magazines had already been covering the Japanese version, so we were well aware, if you were really into video games, about the game itself and what it would be in it. But for those who weren't plugged into such things, this was kind of a big deal. There's definitely a Nintendo commercial vibe to the entire film. In certain theaters, if you went there, they gave out issues of Nintendo Power magazine, but in pocket form, called Pocket Power. So you could look up those online if you were interested in picking them up. Plus six free strategy guides on a hot new game. That's twice the power for still 15 bucks. Wow, go 
Now I'm going to talk a little bit about the plot of the film. It is a family film and grows into a road trip adventure. It's about, I guess, two brothers are at its core, Jimmy and Corey Woods. They've been separated because of the parents' divorce. Jimmy has had some horrible things happen to him. He saw his younger sister die and has left him in a state of silence and riddled with post-traumatic stress disorder. His behavior confuses everyone around him, and it puts a lot of stress on the family. In the larger film, unedited, there's a lot more drama about what this accident, Jimmy seeing his sister pass away, had done to not just Jimmy, but the entire family. But remember, this is a commercial for Nintendo. So Corey figures out that Jimmy is a natural at playing video games, a real wizard, and At the same time, Jimmy has this want to go to California that confuses everyone. Nobody can understand why. And so a road trip begins. They meet a young girl, Haley, on the road, who is also very interested in Jimmy's wonderful video game skills and knows of a competition out in California. So the alignment of the skills, the alignment of Jimmy wanting to go to California come together. Meanwhile, the families are looking for Jimmy and Corey The father and the older brother, played by Bo Bridges and Christian Slater, go to try to find the two. And his mom and this jerk guy hire a bounty hunter to also go find him. And this bounty hunter stuff is kind of played for laughs and kind of a little creepy. His name is Putnam. Along the way, we meet other video game aficionados and eventually competitors, including Lucas Barton, who is the one who demonstrates the power glove. And I guess if you've seen anyone showing an image of someone wearing a power glove saying it's so bad, that is Lucas Barton, played by Jackie Vinson, and it's probably the most famous part of this film for those who haven't seen it. Along the way, they start training. They have run-ins with Putnam. They find out a lot more about each other. The father and Christian Slater's character bond along the road and they learn more about video games. Pretty much everyone learns a lot more about video games. And at the end, we wind up at the video game tournament, Video Armageddon, great name, which happens to take place at Universal Studios, even better because you get to see Universal Studios and the Universal Monsters are kind of in the background along with some other characters. Makes it a lot of fun. Plus, it's got great late 80s colorfulness to the tournament and a really creepy announcer guy who runs the tournament. Much like Putnam, it's almost menacing, but kind of played for laughs at the same time. Not sure what to make of it. I find it a little disconcerting. We ultimately find out why Jimmy has wanted to go to California. It's because that's where he remembers the family being happiest together, at the Cabazon dinosaurs. And remember those big dinosaurs in Pee-wee's Big Adventure and other movies? Those are in California and... That's where Jimmy wants to bring photos and mementos of his sister. And eventually, that's where he gets his closure. There's a lot of articles online about Jimmy trying to discuss if it's just PTSD that he suffers from or if there's something more going on. I think as people became much more aware of autism, I don't think they ever mentioned in the film that that is something that Jimmy has. But I think a lot of people have read that into the film, although there's no mention of it. Some people have seen that as a further explanation of his behavior and also try to look at the character's growth in the film to show how people can grow even when they've been born on the spectrum. So even before I get into the cast of the film, I want to talk about the real star of the film, and that would be Nintendo's Power Glove. 
I talk a little bit about the Nintendo Power Glove in one of my earlier episodes of the show, Famous Nintendo Missteps. The Power Glove was put out by Mattel. A lot of people think of it as a purely Nintendo product, but it was put out by Mattel. It is an input device that you wear on your hand, sort of an earlier version of things like you would get with the Wii, kind of a controller that allowed you to be in the XYZ access. But there had to be a control scheme for it, for whatever game you have. But it really never works as well as you hope it's going to. It kind of more looks cooler than it actually is. In the film, you see Lucas, played by Jackie Vincent, use it to play Rad Racer. There were only two games made in the Power Glove series of games, and Rad Racer wasn't one of them, but it's one of those games you could play, although it's much easier with the controllers than with the Power Glove. A fun little Easter egg is that when Lucas presses on some keys, it makes a five-tone musical phrase, and it's the music from the aliens in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. When they're trying to communicate back and forth, that's kind of a fun little thing they threw in there. glove. Nobody besides Lucas uses the power glove, even though on the box art of the film, you see Fred Savage wearing the power glove. And there's only a very limited scene, although very dramatic limited scene, that has the power glove in it. The power glove for your NES. Now you and the games are one. Glove. Everything else is child's play. See the Power Glove in the hot new movie The Wizard, starring Fred Savage. Holland was very happy with the cast he would have, although he had to fight for some of the characters he would want. Really, what he was concerned with was trying to get the perfect trio of Haley, Corey, and Jimmy, and he would get those in Fred Savage, star of the Wonder Years, Luke Edwards, and Jenny Lewis. We'll start off with Fred Savage, who played Corey Woods. Frederick Aaron Savage was born in 1976, an actor and director best known as Kevin Arnold in the American television series The Wonder Years. He also was in The Princess Bride and would eventually become a director, directing a lot of television. Quite a resume on that front. Luke Edwards played Jimmy. Not a deep acting resume. He's credited with work on things like Little Big League, The Wizard, and Jeepers Creepers 2. Jenny Lewis played Haley Brooks. Got her start working in a lot of commercials for things like Barbie and Toys R Us. I watch a lot of commercials, and I have spotted her recently after becoming aware that she had been in all of these movies. She would work on a lot of TV shows in the 80s including Murder, She Wrote, The New Twilight Zone, Growing Pains, The Golden Girls, Just the Ten of Us, and many more. She would then appear in a dozen movies, including Troop Beverly Hills and The Wizard. While a talented actor, she is also a singer-songwriter and musician. She was the lead singer, guitarist, and keyboardist for the band Rilo Kylie, and would release four albums there. She also has a solo career and has been a member of the bands Postal Service and Jenny and Johnny. Christian Slater played Nick Woods. Christian Michael Slater was born in 1969. Big premiere movie was in the film The Legend of Billie Jean, then would go on to greater and greater things. 
Maybe his big breakthrough role was as JD in the high school satire Heathers. Most recently, you might have seen him on the USA Network's television series Mr. Robot. Bo Bridges played Sam Woods, born in 41. He's a director and actor, member of the Bridges family, father Lloyd, brother Jeff. He has won Emmys, Golden Globes, and Grammys, and also nominated for SAG Awards. He has a huge resume on TV and film, and is considered a top-notch actor. Will Seltzer played Putnam, mostly a supporting character actor, worked in TV shows like Barney Miller and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. I have to say he's kind of fun to watch, even though in the film, it's a really weird energy. Maybe it's just because he's stalking children throughout the film, but it's hard to separate that. Jackie Vincent played Lucas Barton, not a big career and sort of a checkered past after this film. Not really worth talking about as a person outside of his small role in this. Rounding out the cast, you had Wendy Phillips as the mother, Christine Bateman. Sam McMurray as Mr. Bateman, her second husband. Almost wanted to talk about him. He's so great at playing heels in films. Frank McRae played Spanky, the truck driver. Great character actor in this film. Very likable. And there was also an uncredited appearance by Toby Maguire as one of Lucas Barton's friends, a goon. But if you're watching the film, it's very obviously Toby Maguire in the film. He is one of those people who kind of looked the same as time went on. You got 50,000 on Double Dragon? Greg Savage has a plan. He's headed for the video championships. It's going to take a lot of talent. Here we come! A little romance. I am not kissing a boy. And the wizard. Video Armageddon. You can do it! You're the best! Fred Savage in The Wizard. Rated PG. Free Nintendo Pocket Power Magazine with admission while supplies last. Starts Friday at theaters everywhere. The music in the film was put together by John Peter Robinson. He's an English composer known for his work on film and television. Would eventually become a session keyboardist working with people like Phil Collins and Mike Rutherford of Genesis, Carly Simon, Andrew Lloyd Webber, and many others. He started film composition in 1985 and then would have a good run of films, including Cocktail in 1988, The Wizard in 89, Wayne's World in 1992, Wes Craven's New Nightmare in 94, and so on and so on. He also worked on TV shows like The Wonder Years, Tales from the Crypt, and Eerie, Indiana. He worked with Michael Honig on the horror films The Gate and The Wraith, which have pretty good soundtracks. Unfortunately, the Wizard soundtrack was never released. It seems primed for that. There have been a lot of people who've assembled versions of the soundtrack online, not just from the film itself, but also music from the video games that are included in the film. Music on the film varies from Patsy Cline to New Kids on the Block to Bobby Brown. So it runs the entire gambit of musical styles at the time. For me, any film that has Send Me an Angel by Real Life in it is worth owning the soundtrack of. This and Rad are the movies that I think of whenever I think of Send Me an Angel. I think of Rad first because of the dance bike scene, but they use Send Me an Angel pretty good in this film too. I don't know if we'll get a good release of the soundtrack, but in the meantime, just go to YouTube if you want to hear it. You can also do some searching online. Some people have made their own versions of it available, including CD art, things like that you could print out and make your own. Just a quick rundown of the Nintendo games and products that appear in the film. Various NES games, 
appear in the film, as well as the Power Glove making an appearance. The games that appear are Super Mario Bros. 2 and 3, Ninja Gaiden, Double Dragon, Mega Man 2, Rad Racer, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, RC Pro-Am, Contra, Zelda 2 The Adventure of Link, F1 Dream, and Chinagate. Quite a lot of Nintendo stuff. Will you be the one to witness the birth of the incredible Nintendo Entertainment System? The one to play with Rob, the extraordinary video robot, batteries not included. He helps you tackle even the toughest challenge. Will you be the first to raise the incredibly accurate Zapper and play games like Duck Hunt or action-packed Hogan's Alley and high-flying Kung Fu, each sold separately? Will you be the one to experience the Nintendo Entertainment System? Comes with Rob, Zapper, Control Deck, two controllers, Gyromite, and Duck Hunt. The film came out on December 15th, 1989, and would debut at number 5, earning $2.1 million at the domestic box office. The film would gross $14.2 million, which, with a $6 million budget, it was considered a moderate success at the time, and it would eventually go on to become a cult film. If you're interested in what was out at the time that this film was released, the number one film in the country that week was National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. The number two film was The War of the Roses. Number three was Back to the Future Part Two. And number four was The Little Mermaid. So quite a hefty amount of competition, especially a lot of family-friendly competition. So probably released another time and The Wizard would have done a little bit better. Rounding out the top ten, you had Family Business at number six. Steel Magnolias at number seven. We're No Angels at number eight. Blaze at number 9, and Harlem Nights at number 10. As you might guess, it was not well received at the time. Many critics just called it a feature-length commercial for both Nintendo and Universal Studios Hollywood. Maybe I'm not cynical, but boy, a feature-length commercial for both of those things sounds amazing, and that's why I guess I'm happy this film exists. In fact, it's not a feature-length. There's all this other nonsense going on. I want, just on the big screen, a late 80s commercial for both of those things. Just two hours of that would make me quite happy. Roger Ebert called the film a cynical exploitation film with a lot of commercial plugs and insanely overwritten and ineptly filmed, eventually labeling it one of the worst films of 1989. I might not agree with Roger Ebert all the time, but boy do I love his reviews. This is what he said about the film specifically. Who is this movie intended for? No one above the age of reason will be able to abide it. Of those below the age, the studio may have targeted kids who are Nintendo fans, but here the problem is that the movie doesn't have much Nintendo in it, and some of that is wrong. When it's announced, for example, that the third level of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles has been reached, the movie screen clearly shows the first level. See, that's the thing about Roger Ebert. He's watching that film, and he's honest. He's looking specifically for what he likes or what he, as a critic, sees as wrong, and he's not wrong about some of the things in it. It's why I might disagree with him, but generally find his reviews to be pretty spot on. Unfortunately for director Tom Holland, all of this came back to him. Universal saw the film as nothing but a commercial, and even though it would eventually make money, they hoped they could capitalize on the popularity of Nintendo and that it would make more money. So they told him it was a flop, and he had a hard time getting work after that. And it wasn't until the film came out on DVD and the internet started to grow 
that Holland would realize that this film had fans. And it's the things that he fought to put in the film, the things about the kids, all of the information he could put in about video games, trying to make it more broadly appealing that people generally identified with. So the thing that makes it a cult film are the things that this director really tried to put into it. Unfortunately, when the film first came out on VHS and Laserdisc, the internet didn't exist, and neither did the press that would talk about it separately from the internet. It was released on VHS and Laserdisc three times, in 1990, 1992, and 1997. It was already doing well, though. By 1993, it had grossed $6 million in video rentals alone, so already there it's making back what they had to put in to make the film. Its first DVD release would be in 2001, but that was overseas. It would take five more years, until 2006, before it got a release in the US and Canada on DVD. And then we had to wait until 2018 to get a Blu-ray version. Then we would get a Shout Factory Blu-ray release in 2020. Always good, if you can, to get the Shout Factory version. It had a 4K remaster and a great audio commentary with Todd Holland as well as deleted scenes and a whole bunch more. If you want to see a lot of the things that were on the cutting room floor, then you're going to want one of these copies from Shout Factory. I think they really did cut the film down to where it should be. Still, it's interesting to see the character development in these deleted scenes. It just would have slowed the film down. And as a kid, I probably would have been less tolerant of that slower pace. Maybe I could have enjoyed it more as an adult, but I'm not sure. I think the cuts were good. And so the idea of a longer edition, I would say a producer's cut, since it was Holland who kind of fought to cut a lot of these scenes, isn't warranted. I prefer the original, and I like just having deleted scenes as extras. But really, some of the best stuff is the commentary on these. As time has gone on, this film has developed a cult status, and it's because of the work of people like Holland, who's gone out and spoke about it, but also the three main stars of the movie, Luke Edwards, Jenny Lewis, and Fred Savage, showing up at gaming tournaments, getting the word out, and keeping the idea of the film alive. It might sound like a silly film, but it captured a moment in the growth of video games and the idea of tournaments and what that would look like, which was still a fairly new concept. And you got to wonder, did Video Armageddon in the film influence the greater gaming community as opposed to the other way around? And I would argue yes. The sort of over-the-topness, the theatrics, that is what you see when you go to video game tournaments now. And this movie amps that up in a very late 80s, almost 90s way, kind of ahead of its time. So if you've heard about The Wizard and never have checked it out, maybe you think it's silly, you should really give it a watch. If you're a Nintendo fan, you're going to have a lot of fun. You might also be like Roger Ebert and spot all the inconsistencies, which is also fun. There's really no wrong way to enjoy this film. And so if you're looking for something to watch this weekend, why not check out The Wizard? And if you've seen it once before, go pick up that Blu-ray and listen to the director commentary. You'll learn a whole lot more about the film. And then the next time you rewatch it, you'll be able to appreciate it even more. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. 
The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitch and Twitter. He's at PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number 8. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can give it a 5-star review wherever you downloaded the show. It really helps people find it. You can also support the show via Patreon at patreon.com retroist. Get member-only episodes, bonus tracks, bonus scans, and access to the Retroist Discord, a great online community. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. I love the Power Glove. It's so bad. This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye.